My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the militant SCOTUST. No, just kidding. I am still a Thomist. The rumors are not true. I'm not becoming a SCOTUST. I am convinced. I'm convinced that St. Thomas is right. But today we will be taking from that beloved doctor, the church, blessed John Dunn SCOTUS, a section where he tells us how to explain, how to convince heretics um, of the truth of scripture. So you're in for a fun one because SCOTUS does a beautiful job of this, taking from the tradition of the fathers and then from his own theological reflection to tell us the 10 ways, I think it's 10, the 10 ways in which we can convince heretics. So this is from Blessed John Dun Scotus's Ordinatio, which interestingly enough, I will be putting in print here soon, still um, in conversation with somebody. Actually, I emailed him a few months back and he said that he would be ready here soon on um, writing an introduction to that piece. So really excited for it. And uh, let's get right into it. Militant Jamie said, SCOTUS isn't a doctor of the church yet. While that is true, um, I'm giving the title of doctor uh, informally because um, if you look at uh, a lot of these medieval doctors, including guys like Henry of Ghent, um, they will be called doctors. Actually, Leonard says that he is actually uh, formally a doctor, so maybe I'm wrong, but um, either way. Uh, that term doctor is can be used in a proper sense and an improper sense, but we will not get into that. If uh, Militant Jamie, you could pull that up, that would be glorious, and I will let you guys know later. Okay, so from Blessed John Dunscotus's Ordinatio, I will get this all zoomed in for you so you can see it. This will be the uh, copy that I will be working, that I have been working off of. Um, Need to put it back one uh, for editing um, that book. So it'll be a lot of volumes. I think it's around 10 um, volumes of his Ordinatio, where he goes over most of the um, issues of theology. And he's responding to a lot of the doctors that came before him, like Henry of Ghent and like Thomas. So, yeah. Okay, let's get into it. Various ways of convicting heretics. Oh, there's eight ways, actually. Against all these together, that is the heretics, there are eight ways of rationally convicting them, which are prophetic foretelling, the agreement of the scriptures, the authority of the writers, the carefulness of the recipients, the rationality of the contents, and the irrationality of the separate errors, the firmness of the church, and the clear evidence of miracles. So first, on prophetic foretelling, which this is going to be in reference to the fact that scripture, no matter what the uh, the modern biblical scholars want to tell you, did tell about things before they happened. This is an irrefutable fact. And the arguments can go like this. You can't tell about things before they're going to happen unless you're divinely inspired because man only knows the present. And, become, and comes to know the future only through divine graces. Okay, so about the first matter, first, the matter is clear. Since only God naturally and not from someone else foresees future contingents with certitude, 
and future contingents are those things which may or may not happen in the future. Therefore, only he or someone instructed by him, that is a prophet, can predict them with certitude. Now, many such things foretold in Scripture have been fulfilled. It is clear to anyone who considers the prophetic books, of which the few that remain, there is no doubt, but that they will follow, according to Gregory in a certain homily. The same way is touched on by Augustine, the city of God. Quote, that what he said in the past is true, he shows from the future things he foretold, when these with so much truth are fulfilled. And this way is going to be pretty simple, because all you really need to do is point the heretics who de deny the Old Testament, or unbelievers in general, that the simple and clear fact that the Old Testament talks about things that haven't happened yet, and with great certitude predicts them. So it must be prophecy. Okay. Two, on the agreement of the scriptures. On the second, namely the agreement of the scriptures, the matter is clear thus. In things that are not evident from the terms, nor have principles thus evident from the terms, there is no firm and infallible agreement among many persons diversely disposed, unless they receive inclination to assent from a cause superior to their intellect itself. Okay, so this argument's going to go like this. If you get together a bunch of people and tell them to give their various opinions on things, they're not going to agree. This is a, this is a very uh, self-evident fact. But you get together these dozens of authors, some of whom are separated by thousands of years in various cultures, and they actually agree perfectly with one another. So this is proof that there is a singular cause of their speaking, and that singular cause is divine grace. But the writers of the sacred canon, being variously disposed and existing at different times, so notice also this, they're variously disposed, like John and Peter and Paul and, and uh, James, they're very different people, and they're saying the same exact things, which on such inevident things altogether is in agreement. This way is dealt with by Augustine, city of God, quote, our authors needed to be few lest by their great numbers. They should be rendered cheap, and they are not so few that their agreement is not marvelous. For neither might one find in a great number of philosophers that all they thought was in agreement among them. And Augustine proves the fact by these examples. Yeah, so uh, again, you have a great number of authors. So it is absolutely marvelous that it agrees upon one another. So from the assumed major premise... So the fact that they agree with one another, that's the major premise, is not only proved by the example of the philosophers, as Augustine seems to prove. Oh, wait, never mind. The major premise is that it's a marvelous thing that many people agree with one another. So for the assumed major premise is not only proved by the example of the philosophers, as Augustine seems to prove it, but also by reason. Because since the intellect is, as far as assent is concerned, naturally moved by an object evident in itself or in another. Nothing else besides the object seems able to cause such assent unless it virtually includes all the evidence of the object. For if nothing of this sort moved the intellect, theology will remain neutral for it. So unless all of these people are gazing upon the same object, which is God, 
then they're not going to have such evidently uh, unanimous consent, especially with these diverse people. Now, there's nothing of this sort in respect of things not evident from the terms save an intellect superior to our own, but nothing intelligent superior to man can effectively move man save God. So it's proved by the fact that there is really no other explanation for this agreement. Okay. And then he makes a brief distinction. Now he answers an objection right here, makes a brief distinction. If it be said here that the later writers, although differently disposed than the early ones and existing at different times, did yet possess the doctrine of their predecessors in their writing and acquiesced in believing them as disciples acquiesce in the teaching of their masters. In this way wrote nothing that was discordant with the earlier writers, although God did not teach either the latter or the former. So basically the objection is being brought up, which is a modern objection, is that basically, well, Moses might have just made up all that he wrote and all the later authors in reading Moses were just parroting what he was saying. Therefore, obviously I agree because they were disciples of the same guy. Augustine in an earlier place seems to bring an objection against this. When he says about the philosophers, they left in their literary labor memorials of their doctrines which memorials their disciples read, and although in some things they, as disciples, assented to their predecessors, yet in other things they rejected. The thing is clear in the same place of Augustine about Aristippus and Antisthenes, who were both Socratics, yet in some things they contradicted each other, and disciples have sometimes even contradicted their master, as Aristotle did Plato. How then did our later writers not contradict the earlier ones in some things, if they had not a common teacher inclined their intellect to the same inevident things? So this argument is basically, think about, something popped up. okay, think about, for example, um, Augustine himself. Who claims to be Augustinians? We have the Thomas, they claim to be Augustinians. The Scotus claim to be Augustinians. The Molinists claim to be Augustinians. The Lutherans claim to be Augustinians. The Reformed claim to be Augustinians. The Eastern Orthodox claim to be the true Augustinians. So you're going to have these diverse groups of people claiming to be Augustinians, yet they disagree amongst themselves. So unless there is this common cause moving the intellect, it is natural and almost to be expected that disciples are in some ways going to disagree with their masters. So there has to be that common cause of the divine intellect. So now he gives his formal response down here. Response. Because the earlier writers handed on inevident things, therefore the latter ones were not able to reject them by reason. And if they were not able to get a cogent reason for themselves, they did not wish to disbelieve them, reverencing them as truthful masters. But the philosopher disciples were able, by reason, to reject their masters, because the master about which they were disputing was capable of receiving reasons taken from the terms. An example, a disciple in histography does not contradict his master in histography in the way that a philosopher contradicts a philosopher, because histories are not capable of being evident about the past enough to turn a disciple from the master in the way that philosophical reasons could do. Contrary to this, 
is at least the fact of Ezekiel prophesying in Babylon at the time that Jeremiah prophesied in Judea. So again, you're having you're having a lot of these people who aren't having much contact with one another who are saying the same exact things. Since they both said not only things that they could have had from Moses, their common masters it were, but also many other things. They would have been able to disagree in those these things since they were not evident from the terms unless they had some common teacher superior to the human intellect. So basically, you're having these people that don't even know about each other who are saying things that are not contained explicitly in Moses, yet they are still agreeing upon them. So still this objection that they all were just copying and, and spurting out the same things as Moses were does not follow because they were at the same time in different places. The same especially goes for the apostolic band who are all throughout the entire world and aren't necessarily um, discussing these things because that's not how uh, contact happened in the ancient world. They weren't, they didn't have Facebook groups and YouTube and, and uh, Twitter and stuff like that to, to uh, interact with one another. There are completely different times and places saying the same exact things, even when they're not, uh, they don't have a mutual and common source. Uh, so therefore there must be a mutual and common source superior to them, which is the divine intellect. Okay. So third, on the authority of the writers. On the third, namely the authority of the writers, the thing is clear thus. The books of scripture either belong or do not belong to the authors whose books they are said to be. If they do belong, since they condemn lying, especially in faith and morals, how is it likely that if the Lord had not spoken, the authors lied and said, thus saith the Lord? Or if you say they were deceived and not lying or wanting to lie for the sake of gain, to the contrary and first against the first, namely that they were not deceived. So, uh, so th for the first argument, before I get into his response to the second, the first is basically, well, obviously these guys condemn lying. Obviously, th there's no reason to believe from reading these guys that they are deceivers or liars. And obviously they're not lying for the sake of their own gain. If you're going to bring that up, they all got killed. Um, so what reason do you have to believe that these people are just making it up and saying, thus saith the Lord, because they felt like it. And then the second would be maybe they're, they're deceived and such. So to the contrary, first against the first, namely that they were not deceived. For the blessed apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 2, I know a man in Christ above 14 years ago. And he adds there that he heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter, which assertions do not seem to have been without lie if the asserter was not certain. Because to assert a doubtful thing as if it were a certain truth is a lie or not far from a lie. From this revelation of Paul and from many others made to diverse saints, the conclusion is drawn that their intellect could not have been induced to assent as firmly as they did assent to things of which they could not by natural resources have had knowledge saved by a supernatural agent. So again, um, it's if you're going to say that they were deceived and they didn't have certitude about, um, about what they were saying, this again would be a species of the genus lying because they would be lying because they're 
very clearly asserting that they are certain about these things. So against the second, that they were doing it for their own gain. Against the second, namely, that they lied for the sake of gain. The answer is that they endured on behalf of these things they wanted to induce men to believe the greatest tribulations. Okay, if, if I'm, let's say I go out and uh, let's use a very personal example to me. The people that were saying that I became a, uh, I became a Catholic for the sake of my own gain. Why in the heck would I do that? I, it, being a Catholic has not been the most externally comfortable thing when it comes to gain for me. I had to get a different job. I had to choose a new career path and stuff like that. Those are external tribulations. So obviously, I'm not doing it for the sake of my own gain. There must be other reasons, but the reason's not my own gain. So he's established they're not lying. They're not uncertain. And it's not for their own gain. So what else is it besides that they have that common supernatural agent, which is um, which is God? So he goes on. If the books do not belong to them, but to others, so the objection that it is uh, pseudepigraphical in nature, this seems an inconsistent thing to say, because in this way, any book at all will be denied to belong to the author whose book it is to be said. For why have these books alone been falsely ascribed to authors whose books they were not? So bring forth your reasons. Why are you saying they're pseudepigraphical? Besides, those who ascribe the books to them either were or were not Christians. So, again, it makes no sense, and you have really no proof that they were falsely ascribed, or else you would just uh, make up that every single book was falsely ascribed. I could say this book by Scotus was falsely ascribed if I just wanted to say it. Besides, those who ascribe the books to them either were or were not Christians. If they were not, it does not seem that their wish was write down such books and ascribe them to others and magnify a sect whose contrary contrariety they maintained. So why would non-Christians be writing all these things which are very positive and put Christians in a very positive light? That makes no sense. If they were Christians, how then did the, those Christians deceitfully ascribe such books to them since their law condemns lying as noted before? So, again, if they were Christians, why would they lie, especially writing super pseudepigraphical books where they're condemning lying? There's there's a much better explanation for the data that we have, which is that there's one common and uh, divine source. And for the same reason, how do they assert that God said the many things that are narrated? And this to the persons whose names the book bear, if such things did not happen to such persons. Again, the data we have is very historically rigorous and very historically uh, authenticated by um, sources coming after these guys. So how would they know if they were just forgeries from a later time? How, too, would these books in this way have become authentic and widely published as belonging to such authors if they were, in fact, not theirs and the authors not genuine? So again, how did the entire church accept many of these books, especially the four gospels and the letters of Paul, if they were pseudepigraphical? You don't think that if somebody 50 years after Paul died, randomly wrote a letter and then, then put it among the people that people would catch on, at least some would catch on. It doesn't make any sense. On this point, Richard of St. Victor says on the Trinity, quote, 
By men of the greatest sanctity have they been delivered to us. Again, Augustine, City of God, speaking of Christ, says, quote, Having spoken first through the prophets, then through himself, afterwards through the apostles, as much as he judged sufficient, he established a scripture, which is called canonical, of the most eminent authority. This in that place, and in his first epistle to Jerome, and it is contained in On Consecration, he writes, quote, If even useful lies have been admitted into sacred scriptures, what authority will remain in them? And the same to the same in the same epistle, quote, only in those books of the scriptures, etc. Okay, so I have, there's, some, there's a brief comment from Shia Alex. I do agree that lying for gain is a weak argument, regardless of the truth of the matter of their death. It is certainly truthful that they had a knowledge they would face oppression. Yeah. Yeah. Lie. I, I think in order to have a counter argument to this, one has to, um, because I believe it is evident to any historian that at least some of the books in the New Testament were written by the authors that they are ascribed to. For example, Galatians by Paul, that is basically indisputable. So if you're going to say that they lied, because you would have to say that they lied, what exactly is the motivating factor behind that? It just wouldn't be reasonable to say that. Okay. So fourth is the carefulness of the recipients. On the fourth, namely the carefulness of the recipients, the thing is clear thus. Either you do not believe anyone Sorry. Either you do not believe anyone about a contingent thing you have not seen, and so you do not believe that the world was made before you, or that there is a place in the world where you do not have been, or that there is your father and she is your mother. Okay, so either, so there's going to be two options. The first option is going to be that you do not take anything on faith, and that is completely opposed to the experience in which you live, because you take certain things on faith. For example, that your mom is your mom. You have no empirical evidence that your mom exists. I mean, that your mom exists, that your mom is your mother, that she bore you. You have no empirical evidence. I mean, how could you? But you believe that on faith. And this refusal to believe destroys the whole of political life or social life. If then you wish to believe someone about a contingent thing that is not and was not evident to you, you should most of all believe the community or those things that the whole community approves, and especially the things that a noteworthy and reputable community has taught with the greatest care that it should be approved. So when you're taking things on faith, you it would be most reasonable that you are assenting to those things in which a trusted community approves. For so, for example, let's say, um, this is an imperfect example, but let's say Aristotle on Plato. So Aristotle obviously knew Plato. Plato is the teacher of Aristotle. And if you're going to go about what Plato believed from a secondary source, you would definitely trust Aristotle because Aristotle was his student, he knew him personally, and such. So if you're going to get certain uh, biographical facts, it would be wise to go to 
Aristotle as a trusted source. So such is the canon of scripture for so great was the care of the Jews for the books to be kept in the canon. And so great was the care of the Christians for the book to be received as authentic. That so great care about any writing to be held as authentic has not been found, especially since very solemn communities have cared for those scriptures as for things containing those which were necessary for salvation. So when you look for an example of a, um, of a group which is very careful to preserve something, the Christians and the Jews have been extremely careful with the retaining of their divine scriptures. So there is no reason to believe that such a group would not have would not retain those things which are authentic. About this, Augustine, City of God, says, quote, How is it that the writing of Enoch, of which Jude makes mention in his epistle, is not contained in the canon? nor many other things of which mention is made in the book of the Kings, where he indicates that only the writing that the authors wrote, not as men, but as prophets by divine inspiration was received into the canon. And in the same place, he says, quote, the Israelites to whom were entrusted the sayings of God did not in any way confound the false prophets with the true in equality of knowledge, but they are in agreement among themselves and dissent in nothing. They recognize and held the authors of the sacred letters to be truthful. Before we get to five, Shia Alex said something. I don't think anyone doubts any of the Pauline epistles minus Hebrews, which I don't think is particularly useful from a Muslim view uh, to debate in the first place. Yes, although I have seen Muslims dispute um, the authenticity of the authors mentioned in the New Testament, which again, I don't think that's a defended thesis. I don't think you're able to defend that thesis. So next, on the rationality of the contents. On the fifth, namely, the rationality of the contents, the thing is clear thus. What is more rational than that God, as ultimate end, should be loved above all things in one's neighbor as oneself? That is, as to what one wants for oneself, according to Blessed Gregory. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Again, this do ye even so to others, etc., from these practical principles, as it were, follow other prin practical principles handed on in the scriptures, principles honorable and constant with reason, as can be said as to their rationality by any one who by one by one examines the precepts, the councils, and the sacraments, because in all of these there seems to be, as it were, a sort of explication of the law of nature, which is written on our hearts. This about morals, on this point Augustine says, Quote, nothing base or shameful is proposed for consideration and imitation. When of the true God, either precepts are instituted or miracles na narrated or gifts, praise or benefits requested. So this gets into a little bit of um, about the concept of the religious sense. So when everybody has their own um, religions and philosophies, which participate imperfectly in the fullness of truth, or are even in heretical sects, such as those who are, um, I'm sorry, but Protestants, or those who are Muslims, or um, those who are of various sects. Um, when you point them to the, uh, the Catholic faith, and when you point them especially to sacred scripture, there is this realization there is that voice of sacred scripture speaking to them that on those principles of reason 
and those good and true principles which they hold to, that the perfect fulfillment and completion of those is found in the Catholic faith and in the divine scriptures. Okay. So about things for belief, it is plain that we believe nothing about God, which imports any imperfection. Nay, rather, if there is anything we believe to be true, it attests more to the divine perfection than the opposite. So looking at, just look at our doctrine of God. With our doctrine of God, it is the superlative and supreme perfection of God. The thing is plain about the trinity of persons, about the incarnation of the word and the like. For we believe nothing incredible, because then it would be incredible that the word believes them, as Augustine concludes in City of God. Yet that the world believes them is not incredible, because we see it. This law and integrity of Christians are clear in Augustine on the unity of believing. Quote, a crowd of males and females, etc. Okay, so when you look at, for example, I would challenge you, those of you who are uh, not Christians, to, for example, look at the incarnation. Has anything so wondrously consonant with divine love ever been conceived? Think about it. God becoming man, that man might become God. God redeeming those from sin through the greatest pain and suffering. That is completely con consonant with um, the conception of a God who is loving. It's completely consonant with reason, and it is the superlative perfection that is found in the glorious majesty and truth of the Catholic faith. So, sixth, the irrationality of errors. On the sixth, namely, the irrationality of the separate errors, the thing is plain thus. What will the pagans introduce for their idolatry, worshiping as they do the works of their own hands, wherein there is nothing of the divine, as is shown sufficiently by the philosophers? And what will the Saracens, so the Saracens are referring to the Muslims, disciples of, I'm sorry, uh, any Muslims who are listening, that most worthless swine, Muhammad, allege for their scriptures, except for beatitude, as they do what befits swine and asses, namely sated gullet and coitus, which promise avens, avis, avensina, I'm sorry, who was as though of that sect despises in his metaphysics. And he sets down another end as more perfect and more fitting to man when he says, Our law, which Muhammad gave us, displays the disposition for a happiness and a misery that are in accord with the body. And there is another promise that is apprehended by the intellect. There follows there, quote, The eagerness of the wise was much more to obtain this felicity than that of bodies, which although it were given them, yet did they not attend to it nor did they value in it comparison with the felicity that is conjoined to the first truth. What of the Jews who condemn the New Testament, which is promised in their Old Testament, as the apostle shows in his epistle to the Hebrews? And how tasteless are their ceremonies without Christ? Again, that Christ has come, and that thus the New Testament he promulgated, as authentic would be something one should accept, is shown by their prophecies. Quote, the scepter says Jacob, shall not depart from Judah, and from him shall the Gentiles wait. Likewise, the verses of Daniel 9.24, when the Holy of Holies has come, your anointing will cease. 
What also of the asinine Manichaeans who invent the fable of an evil first principle, although even they themselves, while not a first, were yet very evil? Surely they saw that every being in so far as it is, is good. Surely too, they could not, they could have seen in the New Testament that the Old Testament is authentic and approved. Again, this, um, so, uh, again, um, sorry, I was reading a comment. Um, what you get in this argument is, um, an argument against the contrary. So the scriptures are perfect and reasonable in themselves and all of the opposing options, whether it be Islam, Judaism, various sects of heresies are completely irrational in comparison with the divine scriptures. And again, these can be fleshed out with specific examples and proved in a certain way, but um, SCOTUS is just giving an overlay, an overview of this. Okay. What of the other individual heretics who have understood one word of scripture badly, according to Augustine, 38 questions, question 69, quote, an error cloaked under the Christian name cannot arise except from scriptures badly understood. And for this reason, they did not collect the antecedents and the consequence. Hence, in the same place, Augustine says, quote, their circumstance in the scriptures is wont to throw light on the meaning, nor did they even collect the other places of scripture. Hence, things read on their own gave rise to heresies that when read together repulsed them because those collecting the diverse statements brought together the things that were by their mutual inter interconnection able to disclose how these statements were to be understood. Against them is the word of Augustine in his book against the letter of the fundamentus. Quote, I would not believe the gospel, he says, save I believe the Catholic Church. Therefore, it is irrational to accept one part of the canon and not another, since the Catholic Church, by belief in which I accept the canon, accepts as certain the whole equally. Again, the doctrines of the philosophers contain something irrational, as is proved by Aristotle in Politics Book 2, about the diverse politics, polities, arra arranged by diverse philosophers. But even his own polity, too, it is is in certain things irrational, as is clear from the solution of the previous collection. Okay, so he goes on to say that um, when it comes to heretics, it is um, it is due to certain not um, inter proper interpretations of scripture, but it's putting parts of scripture against each other and is misinterpreting them. And then also the opinions of the philosophers can't be a foundation for understanding because they have various rationalities. So really the opposing errors have rationalities. Okay. Okay, so Shia Alex, his citation of 3742 to 50 is particularly interesting. I think it gets into the difference of views between Christians and Muslims regarding the nature of material pleasures. That'd be interesting. Um, yeah, so um, if you if you think that you'd be comfortable with discussing that more, I'd like to bring you on for an interview. I think that'd be an interesting talk. Shia, Alex. That's if you're comfortable. If you're not, then it's whatever. 
we could at least do a discussion in the discord which is a reminder join the discord yeah and on a christian view of material pleasures so um so augustine is really helpful in this so he has things to be used and things to be enjoyed so when it comes to those objects of our enjoyment they aren't enjoyed for their own sakes they're enjoyed for the sake of others for the sake of the final good and final joy it is a certain created participation wherein our intellects ascend through our uh, our apprehension of truth goodness and beauty to the truth the goodness the beauty which is god so okay so the seventh we're second to last year we're almost we're almost through on the firmness of the church on the seventh namely the firmness of the church the thing is clear as to the head of it from the remark of augustine on the utility of believing quote Will we doubt to trust to the bosom of the same church which has, in the continuous confession of the human race, obtained by the apostolic see the summit of authority through its succession of bishops, though the heretics bark around it in vain? And a little later, quote, What else is displeasing to the face of God than to want to resist with so much effort his authority foretold? So again, this is on the authority of the church. So those of you who are Protestants out there. Pretty sure this one, oh no, is this one a supergraphical work? Might be, I should say. I don't know, that sounds pseudepigraphical, but if he's saying it, I'll take the W. Hence, Gamaliel says, quote, If this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. So the fact that the Christian faith cannot be overthrown, the fact that we've been firm in holding the same thing in all places, the same doctrine in all places in all times. And in Luke twenty two thirty two, the Lord says to Peter, I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The firmness of the church and its members is clear from the remark of Augustine, quote, a crowd of male and females, etc. Augustine states a like opinion in against the letter of fundamentus for what save god might induce so great a multitude prone to sin to keep a law contrary to flesh and blood there is confirmation in that the sect of the jews does not remain in vigor as augustine objects against them in the sermon quote against you i say o jews i bring my charge if an objection be made about the permanence of the sect of Muhammad, so he's basically saying the permanence of the church is proof of the authenticity of the scriptures with the church preach. So they might be say, well, uh, the Muslims did the same thing. And he, well, his first argument is against the Jews, because obviously I think this is obvious and completely, um, just completely clear to everybody that in the last 2000 years, Judaism has basically died. So against the sect of Muhammad, I reply, that sect began more than 600 years after the law of Christ. And in a short time, if the Lord will, it shall end because it was much weakened in the 13th hundredth year of Christ. And many of its worshipers are dead and very many put to flight. And a prophecy is said to exist among them that their sect must end. Uh, interesting. Um, yeah, so I don't think that's necessarily too good of a of a reply. 
because looking back 700 years later, um, the sect of Muhammad has not died as, as he thought. Okay, so Leonard has a good question. How would you respond to the modern objection orthodoxy is written by the victors? I don't think that's too much of an objection. Christ has promised that he would lead his church into all truth. So the fact that you have victors means per se that they are the true ones. Because as uh, St. Uh, John Henry Newman talks about in uh, one of his marks of the develop a true development of doctrine is that falsehood falls away into oblivion very quickly. And you see that, for example, among Arianism, among Donatism, a more recent one, modernism, like nobody alive today that you meet is an actual like late 19th century uh, modernist. They just don't exist anymore. But orthodoxy never dies. We will not die. You cannot kill us. So, oh, and then she, Alex, responded. Sure, totally. I'd love to discuss that on here. I'd have some clauses and things, but that would be cool. Yeah, okay. Reach out to me and um, we can set something up. That'd be very fun. I think it'd be very helpful too. So eighth, so on the clear evidence of miracles. On the eighth, namely the clearness and evidence of miracles, the thing plain is, is plain thus. God cannot be a false witness, but God himself, when invoked by a preacher of the scripture to show that its doctrine was true, performed some work proper to himself and thereby bore witness that what he preached was true. There is a confirmation from Richard of St. Victor in on the Trinity, quote, Lord, if it is an error, we have been by you deceived. For your deeds have been confirmed by signs so great that they can only have been done by you. And again, this is, uh, interestingly enough, this is an um, argument for continuationism. Because notice, um, uh, Scotus is assuming that this is a continual occurrence, that the miraculous is practiced amongst those who are preachers of scripture. So the fact, the very fact that there are miracles is a confirmation because miracles can only be of divine origin. But if it is said that these miracles have not been performed, or also that they do not testify to the truth, because even Antichrist will perform miracles, against the first point can be stated the opinion of Augustine, quote, if they do not believe that these miracles were done, this one great miracle is sufficient for us, that now without any miracles, the whole world believes. Oh my gosh, I love that quote right there. So the greatest confirmation of the Christian faith is that the whole world believes. And uh, another argument um, that I've seen frequently quoted against this objection is that Satan is not going to bring forth something that makes you love the Holy Trinity more than you currently do. And miracles in many cases are bringing you into a greater faith in the divine son of Christ. Note well the miracle in the chapter, because if what we believe is said to be incredible, no less incredible, he says, is that men of low birth, weak, few in numbers, unskilled, were able so efficiently to persuade the world, and even the learned in the world of a thing so incredible, such that the world does believe it, as now we see it has believed, unless it was that some miracle were done by these men, whereby the world was induced to believe. 
Hence, he there subjoins, quote, For this reason did the world believe a tiny number of low-born, weak, unskilled men, because more marvelously in such contemptible witnesses did divinity itself persuade them. For what is more incredible than that a few teachers, poor and uneducated, should convert many powerful and wise men to a law opposed to flesh and blood, which fact is especially clear in the case of the many very prudent men first fighting against the faith, afterwards afterwards converts as about paul first a persecutor afterwards teacher of the gentiles about augustine first in some way seduced by the manichaeans afterwards a catholic doctor of dionysius first a philosopher afterwards a disciple of paul of cyprian first a magician afterwards a most christian bishop and about many others against the same can be said second the remark of augustine the city of god quote or will someone say that these miracles were not done he can also say that the gods care nothing for mortal things, etc. And in the same place, on the same point, quote, if they believe magical or thurgical books, why do they refuse to trust the writings which say that these things were done to which, end quote. Against the same third is that some of the things done cannot be denied, say, by the most shameless as are the miracles performed by Sylvester in the presence of Constantine, both in curing his leprosy and afterwards in his disputation against the Jews, which deeds being famous have not been hid from the world. Against the second point, which was that the devil did it, it can be said that if anyone, after being summoned as a witness, should permit some customary sign of bearing witness to be adduced, and although present, should not contradict it. Such silence does not cohere with perfect truthfulness, but a miracle is such a sign of God as witness. Therefore, if he should permit miracles to be performed by demons and not contradict them, namely by declaring that they are not his testimonies, he does not seem to be perfectly truthful, which is impossible. And hereby is the response to which is said of Antichrist, because God predicted that miracles to be done were not testimonies of the truth, as is clear in Matthew and Second Thessalonians. So basically, if if these were um, false miracles, then God would contradict them because if people are claiming your name in something, for example, if somebody was going around saying, oh, Christian became a SCOTUST, and I just sat around and was like, eh, okay, I guess I'm a SCOTUS now. Um, I guess I'll lead everybody to believe that. I wouldn't be truthful, and God is supremely truthful. Therefore, he must oppose the works of the unbelieving. Again, against the same point is the difference in the miracles performed by God and those performed by the devil, which difference Augustine treats in his book on the utility of believing. Quote, I call a miracle a marvel miracle. He says, anything that appears difficult beyond the hope or capacity of the one who marvels. Some marvels only cause admiration. Others unite great grace and goodwill, of which sort were the miracles of Christ, and he deals with the matter there extensively. So these miracles bring about grace and goodwill. The devil does not bring about grace and goodwill. Again, against both points, it can be said that there are some miracles performed in the Christian law, wherein there can be no deceit where whether they have been performed, nor that they are testimonies of truth because they were performed by God, like the rapture of Paul and the revelation of future contingents. So Satan cannot know future contingents. Therefore, such a marvel must have been done by God. 
The first claim is clear because it is impossible for anyone to be deceived about his seeing the essence of God. Therefore, it was impossible for Paul to believe he saw the divine essence unless he did see it. And this he asserts of himself in 2 Corinthians, according to the exposition of the saints. Therefore, it happened truly and not in appearance only. Pro the proof of the first antecedent is that no one can be deceived about some first principle. By believing he understands such a principle when he does not understand it, because it would not be clear from the apprehension terms which was a principle and what was not. Therefore, much more can one not be deceived about seeing God. The consequence is plain, because the vision of God is more distinct from the understanding of any object at all, even as to the perception of the intellect of the wayfarer, than is understanding of a propositional principle distinct distant from the understanding of any non-principle. Again, how would the intellect believe it was at rest if it was not at rest? Surely he would not be able to recognize that he has an inclination towards a truth that he does not see. If he believes he sees God, he believes he is at rest in God. If he does not see, he is not at rest. Nothing more stupid, says Augustine, can be said than that a soul with a false opinion might be blessed. A second point, namely, that this could not be done by God is manifest, because no creature can beatify the soul, either simply or for a time. The second claim, miracles as testimonies of truths, like the revelation of future contingents, is plain for many prophecies in both testaments, hence against the false miracles of Antichrist, an objection at least as to these two miracles can be made to him in this way. If you are God, make me to see bare the divine essence, and to have after the vision a sure memory of the vision and a certitude that it was the vision bare of the divine essence, and then I will believe you. Again, if you are God, tell me what I will do, or what I will think or desire on such a day or such an hour. And the efficacy of this sort of way, the way of miracles, is indicated by the Savior in John 5.36, quote, the works that I do bear witness of me. If you do not wish to believe me, believe the works. And then in the ninth place, I'm sorry, I guess I, I guess there are more than this. Oh, there's 10. I was right. There are 10, not eight. Okay, in the ninth place, on the testimony of non-believers. In the ninth place, too, can be adduced the testimony of those who are without the church. Josephus in Antiquities of the Jews sets down a very beautiful testimony about Christ, where, among other things written about Christ, he says, this man was Christ, where he also confesses his true doctrine and resurrection from the dead. Again, about the prophecy of the Sibyl, it is noted in Augustine's City of God, again, against the letter of the Fundamentals. Note how individual heretics send inquirers about Catholics, not to their own people, but to true Catholics, as though they alone indeed are by everyone called Catholics, included by her including by heretics. Yeah. So lastly, on the efficacy of promises, tenth and last can be added that God does not fail those who seek salvation with all their hearts. For many most diligent inquirers after salvation have been converted to the sect, the Catholic faith. And the most fervent they became in inquiry, and more confirmed they were in this sect. And the more suddenly therein have they been changed, and repenting of their malice to goodness of life. Third, too, many have in great exaltation of spirit suffered sorrows on its behalf, which things do not seem probable, did not God especially approve the sect, 
resting as it does on sacred scripture and adorn it, ordain it for salvation. The last one is that the promises of the faith, the promises of scripture are efficacious. And unless God was the one bringing forth these promises to fruition, then they would not be true because in a sense, this is the same as a future contingent. Okay. That's all I have for you. This is the uh, the last stream of the night. I am completely done. So um, I would appreciate it if uh, you appreciate what I do here, becoming a patron, patreon.com slash militantomist, joining the Discord. Um, that's also very important just in case I get nuked. And then the various social media sites that I have that can be found on my link tree, which is in the description below. Thank you all for uh, for hanging out with me tonight through these four streams. And God bless. Glory.